to another Space XPLR episode. Today we have a very super a great guest. So you will see once we start to kind of have this conversation with this man, you will understand this man is super intelligent. He he knows a lot of different stuff when it comes to astronomy and especially, uh, you know, biology in his kind of one of the sectors. So today with us is Graham Lau. So Dr. Graham Lau is an astrobiologist and a communicator of science. So with an academic background spanning biology, chemistry, astrophysics, and geology, Dr. Lau is an ex expert of how living things affect the environment around them and how we can search for alien life beyond the Earth. So as I told you, it's going to be very interesting topics today. So he serves as the Director of Communications and Marketing for Blue Marble Space, as the Director of Logistics for the University Rover Challenge, and as the host of the NASA-funded show Ask an Astrobiologist, so go and check this out. Also, he's also a martial, uh, martial, martial artist, a professional public speaker, and a, a meditation guide. And of course, uh, there will be those social media links included below in the show notes. So make sure to to get in contact with Graham. You know, ask the questions that you want. I'm pretty sure you know he's he's approachable and available, as far as I understood. You know, as from the conversation that we had before I started recording. So, uh, Graham, for you personally, just big thank you again for taking the time to do this today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, okay. So, where do we go? Because I would love to kind of dig in and you know, I would love to know your personal background and your personal story. I mean, how do you kind of shift? And I mean, it was like this, uh, you know, biology and like astrobiology was something that you were uh, been passionate since you was a kid? Or, I mean, how did you start it? And maybe you can talk about what you're currently working on as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love hearing people's science stories or, or you know, like what, what things really drove them in their lives. Uh, so for me personally, mine started at five, uh, five years old. Uh, my, my parents took me to see a movie in the theater called Young Einstein. Uh, this is back in 1988. And this is a, a, a comedy movie from Australia from a guy named Yahoo Sirius, where he plays out this fake story of a life of a fictitious a fictitious character of Albert Einstein. And I was five years old and I saw this movie and, and two things happened inside of me when I got home that night. Uh, the first is I, I made my very first guitar uh, out of a shoebox with my mother's help. Uh, and then the second is that I told my mother that night that I wanted to be a scientist. And so that, that kind of was my beginning into wanting to, to learn about science, to learn uh, about the laws of the universe and to be involved in physics and, and things like that. And then as I was growing up, I got really into science fiction, uh, really into Star Wars and Star Trek, uh, reading science fiction novels. Uh, I've read Dune once a year, almost every year since I was a child. Uh, and these kind of things really started inspiring me. Also watching Cosmos with Carl Sagan inspired me a lot. And I think along the lines, just, you know, all of this science fiction, all of this science, it just, it made me want to ask some of the bigger questions about what it means to be alive, uh, whether or not we're alone in the universe, what consciousness is, what life is, um, some of these deeper things that we humans have been thinking about for a very long time. And we've developed a lot of ways to try to understand through philosophy and theology and through science, uh, different ways to try, try to understand what and who we are in this, this huge universe around us. And so that was kind of my, my, my entryway into wanting to be more involved in this life. 
And that is beautiful. I mean, that that's phenomenal because I don't think there's a lot of people, you know, who are, you know, questioning that, you know, at least uh, from the people that I know, you know, because again, most of the people, they're just busy and they, from time to time, they have those questions. Mm, I'm just wondering what, what the life is really all about. Like, is there kind of one answer to that? But I mean, you kind of doing the research and probably most uh, mostly like at least uh, more than most of us you know thinking about that and you know kind of trying to figure this out and put all the pieces together so the question is you know so maybe you can explain to us i mean having your personal kind of research and experience like what is the closest answer that we got to what this life is <laughs> that's a very good question uh, because if you actually try to try to figure out what is life it, it, we, we don't actually know uh, we do have definitions of life. There have been several hundred proposed definitions of life. Uh, one that you might hear is that life is a self-contained chemical system capable of undergoing Darwinian evolution. And that's kind of like the NASA definition of sorts that you hear a lot. Uh, but even that definition doesn't quite you know, fit everything that we can think of. Like viruses, for instance, they often fall outside of our attempts to define life. And we don't know are they living or are they biological machines? How do we frame them in our understanding of what life is? Uh, and when we're looking out you know, into the universe and wondering if there could be alien life out there, it's very troubling that we don't have a set definition of life or at least a set understanding. Uh, and there are many philosophers of science and, and many astrobiologists who maybe wonder, uh, maybe we can't define life. Maybe we need more examples first. Uh, we have what's called the N equals one problem here on earth in that we only have one example of a biosphere. And so we don't have any other data to work against to, to have comparative biology in the universe. And so one of the reasons that we really wanna know if there is life out there, and if, if there is, we wanna find it, is to give us something else to, to understand, to, to look at, to compare to life as we know it, uh, to help us learn more about maybe a, a more universal theory of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. So, you know, because we as people, we perceive like we understand life because of the senses that we have, the three senses, kind of auditory, you know, we have the, the touch and we have the, you know, the kinesthetic auditory and visual. So through through those, we kind of, we think we understand because once I like touch the table, I, like I feel it, I, it, it looks real, you know, like everything around me looks kind of real, but, you know, in the core, I know everything is kind of made of the atoms and, you know, like, so, so is there the question for you, is there currently uh, with these kind of three sensors that we have, is there a possibility that we actually we're not seeing what the life really looks like because we're missing, you know, some sensor, some sensors yeah. ourselves? Absolutely. Uh, perception is a really interesting thing. Uh, biology has evolved the ability for many organisms on Earth to perceive their environment in different ways. And we're very lucky, we, we get to perceive in ways that allow us to feel the immediate environment around us. Uh, we can feel you know, temperature changes and pressure when we touch things, uh, we can taste our food, um, but we also get to have senses that allow us to see a little bit further away. Uh, so your sense of smell allows you to actually receive the chemical nature of the gas in the environment really close to you in like rooms uh, and if there's you no, know, flower smells and things like that blowing across the meadow towards your face, you can smell those things. And that's actually giving you a distance perception. And then we're very lucky in that we have uh, our ears to hear with and our eyes to see with, uh, to see vibrations, uh, both in how molecules are vibrating in the air and coming to our ears, uh, and in how we're seeing, perceiving light coming to our eyes, electromagnetic radiation coming to our eyes. And it allows us to see things like star 
uh, starlight from from you know many many light years away that has traveled through time to come and to to us and we can see it at night when we look up at the heavens with our eyes we can see this uh, but there's many other forms of perception uh, and there could be even more that we haven't even thought of yet that alien life might have uh, and also we don't have like the best set of every kind of perception that we have uh, so a good example that I love to share is the Greater Wax Moth. Uh, it's a moth here on Earth uh, that has, to our knowledge, the largest range of hearing of any organism on the planet. Uh, so we humans, we hear most of us something around like five hertz uh, or five vibrations per second in the air coming towards our ear, uh, out to about 20,000 hertz or 20,000 vibrations uh, in the air coming towards our ears. Uh, and for those of us who are getting a little bit older in our lives, maybe not so far out, uh, children can hear around 20,000. Some of us, we get older, we, we start losing those higher frequencies. We go down to like 15,000 or so. Uh, but like dogs, you, your dog can hear out to 50,000 hertz. And so that's why a dog whistle, when you blow on it, a human can't hear it, but the dog hears this very high-pitched screeching sound. But other organisms out there on our planet have much different ranges of hearing, like the bottlenose dolphin uh, and whales, bats things that are using echolocation, and the greater wax moth, it hears out to 300,000 hertz, or 300,000 vibrations in the air per second. Uh, that means it's actually starting to hear into our radio frequencies that we are emitting uh, as a technological civilization. We are emitting radio frequencies that these things can hear naturally inside of their ears. Uh, but what's really cool is that their range isn't only out to 300,000, but to our knowledge, it starts somewhere around 50,000 hertz. Uh, so that means that everything that you can hear with your ears, the greater wax moth can't hear at all. And everything that it's hearing, you, you can't perceive, you can't understand what that's like. And so there's, there's alien examples here on Earth for us to look at for how there are different ways to perceive the universe, different ways to take in vibrations in the air and electromagnetic radiation that we can see with our eyes. And so there's a very good chance that we humans are missing out on a few things because of this. Um, and it's one of the reasons why ever since I was a kid and I, and I saw Star Trek First Contact, I've always wanted the Geordie LaForge like bionic eyes. You know, I, I would love to have new eyeballs that have telescopic zoom and can allow me to take infrared and ultraviolet wavelengths and like break those down into something that my, my brain can understand uh, being evolved to see visible light. Uh, and so there's, there's so many other ways for life to perceive the environment, uh, other ways to, to, to understand the chemistry and, and, and the physics of the world around an organism. And so there's a really good reason for us to, to think that maybe there are other senses out there in the cosmos. And so what if we meet an, an intelligent alien civilization who have an entirely different understanding of the universe because of the differences in how they perceive the universe around them? Got it. Got it. Okay. So look, coming back to the point, as I mentioned, you know, the, the Darwinian evolution, I mean, through the current kind of evolution, the, the way if we can look at the back of the past and, you know, maybe we can project into the future. So are we actually improving on those sensors or those sensors are decreasing over time for us as people? You know, I'm not, I'm not an expert on how uh, human senses have evolved in, in near time. Um, so I, I don't know if our, our sight or, or hearing has gotten better or worse uh, by any means. Uh, in our most recent evolution as a species in the last, say, 200,000 years or so. Um, however, I do think we're at a very interesting stage in our evolution, and this is part of what's making us question uh, the modes of evolution and how it functions and how alien life might be out there, 
we are now getting to a stage where our technological understanding is starting to overcome the biology, the natural drive for evolution. Uh, so before things that would drive fitness for a species, we're not really facing those same drives as much as we used to. Uh, we're still certainly evolving. Everything's evolving one way or the other, um, for better or for worse. Uh, but we're at this very interesting time where very soon we can start, like I said, I, I want Jordy LaForge eyes, and that's probably not very far away. I love a new set of my own biological teeth, and we might be able to make that happen soon. Uh, so through medical science and through technology, we are changing what it means to be human. And so in the near future, I would love to see humans go to Mars to explore. I'd love to see humans go out into our solar system further, uh, go back to the moon, maybe go stand on some icy moons like Europa um, or Ganymede. But I also wonder, you know, for the long-term evolution of our species, will we start genetically engineering ourselves? Will we start using technology to augment ourselves in ways that allow us to, to survive in these various environments a little better? And if we start doing that, are we then becoming a technological or technologically evolving species? Uh, recently on my show, Ask an Astrobiologist, I had a guest on named Sue Schneider. Uh, she uh, was the current chair um, at the Library of Congress in Astrobiology, but she's a philosopher who studies artificial intelligence, philosophy of mind, and the future of being human. And we had a conversation that, that centered a lot on whether or not alien life out there will be more likely to be post-biological. Uh, so is there a drive in evolution for species like ourselves to come around that can start developing technological civilizations? And once we do so, is there a, a kind of just a, a, an upward growth into becoming a technological civilization? Um, so whether or not we destroy ourselves is a big question there, but if we become a technological civilization that starts to evolve in a technological way and starts building itself this way, might other species out there also be that? Might they be primarily machines or artificial intelligences? Uh, it's a huge question for us to ask, and, and we're right at a golden era right now to be asking those questions. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, because like uh, the, the one of the people that uh, you mentioned, the Starlink, before we had the conversation, and I want to talk about that maybe a little bit later, but like the Elon Musk, you know, he talked about, kind of proposed that, and again, he works uh, with one of the companies, Neuralink, where he kind of, you know, talks about uh, making that some symbiotic relationship with, you know, artificial intelligence and humans. And uh, would you be up, up for that, against that? Like, what will be your personal thought and idea about us becoming these kind of cyborgs, which we're, I think we're like halfway, probably not halfway through, but we're already going to that direction because, you know, as, as many people know, like the phone and, you know, it's just person, it's a personal extension of us right now. And it's very dear to us right now. So we're, we're kind of, you know, heading that direction. So do you think that we should make that leap and um, because when we're talking about space exploration or just, you know, making great decisions, because that's what the life is made of, you know, the, as, as I always say, you know, the best math that we can learn is how to calculate the future cost of our current decisions. So this is kind of the it, you know, how we make decisions from here going further, you know, and do you think that with this artificial intelligence, we can make better decisions and should we do it? Should we not do it? Or should we just follow the kind of Darwin evolution and just kind of, you know, uh, you know, go from, from there naturally. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a lot of things to unpack there. Um, and, and, and again, may, maybe the natural evolutionary path is to become artificial intelligence, to become post-biological, to become our, our machines, our computers for us to integrate and then become the machine. Um, so that might be the natural path for, for most civilizations. 
Um, from an ethical standpoint, there's a lot of questions, not only about whether or not we, we should allow this coming, you know, some call it the singularity, um, you know, the, this transition into this more technological species. Um, and, and there's a lot of questions about whether or not we should do that. Uh, but I, I think the unfortunate thing is that you might not have a choice because whether or not you think it's morally right for us to do these things, for us to, you know, learn more about the human mind and, and to map it out entirely and then to put that into a machine and then to allow humans to integrate themselves into machines, whether or not you think that's a good idea, somebody else out there does think it's a good idea and they are doing it right now. They're on the steps towards that. And so like you mentioned Neuralink, uh, Neuralink's in, in a very, very early, early step right now uh, of just trying to figure out how they can actually see what a, a mind is perceiving, but that will quickly start to change. And not just Neuralink, but other companies are gonna come online who are mapping out the brain, who are figuring out ways that we can integrate our human minds with artificial intelligence, maybe even giving artificial intelligence a human-like mind, uh, and, and it's coming. And so whether or not you agree with it, I think you should be ready for it. And so what we should be doing right now is we need to have deeper philosophical conversations about what we want to program into the AI. Are there ways for us to safeguard from, being, from destroying ourselves by creating a super intelligent artificial intelligence? Because if we do so without thinking through it, without really properly you know, considering what could happen, it could be our own demise. We could be building our own destruction right now without even realizing it. And it's one reason that, you know, I, I mentioned science fiction before. I love science fiction. I love that a lot of science fiction authors and, and filmmakers over time uh, have used that, that, that medium to really explore really deep moral and philosophical questions. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the robot laws from Arthur C. Clarke, for instance, or sorry, Isaac Asimov, for instance, uh, are a good example uh, of where you have these laws that have been attempted to be programmed into robots to stop them from having issues, from destroying us. But then the primary point of a novel like iRobot is that the laws always have issues. There's always some problem along the way. Um, and so if we build an artificial intelligence that's, that's very smart and can outthink us, we need to make sure that we have something programmed in and the very base, the very core of this new intelligence that makes sure that we're not going to allow it to destroy us. Uh, there's a really fun experiment, uh, a thought experiment out there from Nick Bostrom uh, with the paperclip uh, experiment uh, where you have an artificial intelligence and you tell it that its job is to make paperclips and to sell paperclips. And that's all its job is. All it's going to do is make and sell paperclips. And that sounds fine. You know, this, that sounds innocuous, nothing wrong with that. Uh, but then what if this thing in this process decides to become its own super intelligence to hijack the world internet, to hijack the world's economies, to take over all of humanity to make paper clips. Uh, and so there's a very fun game out there that someone programmed based on this thought experiment where you can play on your computer, uh, just in a browser, uh, through this process of having your artificial intelligence start building paper clips. And if you take it to, to the end, um, you can actually basically destroy the entire universe by making nothing but paper clips out of all of the energy and mass available in the universe. Um, and so I think, and, and I'm glad that some folks out there like Elon Musk and some others are, are, are right now saying, we need to think about this. We need to be ready. Uh, we need to consider how we can safely make artificial intelligence. Um, because again, whether or not you like it, it's already happening. 
Exactly. So it's it's unavoidable. It's unavoidable because, uh, as you mentioned, there are those companies who are putting the time and effort and the capital available to them to to make that shift happen. Because, you know, it, it's like it's inevitable. Because I think that's part of the evolution. Because we cannot live without technology, and like we just you know, like craving every time for something new, for a brand new laptop, phone, whatever that is in technology sector. So, you know, we're naturally kind of probably wired that way, or maybe not, maybe it's just through, again, through the years of evolution. But uh, again, coming back to the point, because Elon Musk, he said uh, kind of personally, I know that he's working again on, on, on this, you know, AI technology, but personally himself, his expression was like, once they this kind of genie will leave the bottle, nobody can control that. And of course, uh, the law, the rules, the regulations, you know, the government will step in later after something, you know, let's say critical will happen. So is there any ways that we kind of mitigate the risk before, uh, you know, those uh, critical situations where we mentioned with a paperclip kind of story when those moments happen? Because once that is out, I mean, it can innovate itself in a rapid rate, right? Like there is no control, like what the AI can do on its own. And I mean, it will have a mind of the person cannot perceive, right? And like right now, again, it, it's being used in, in space already because I know there are some people who are going to uh, astronaut training. And again, it's not the person who will be making those critical decisions into who's going to become an astronaut. That's going to be AI-based technology who will make those decisions. So, I mean, we're already kind of using it in important, you know, things and in, you know, in banking and finance and things like that. So what do you think will be kind of those mitigating risk, you know, um, you know, points that we can avoid from, from, you know, critical moments? Yeah, we, we definitely already have machine learning and artificial intelligence out there that, that people are using, but it's nowhere near what we would call a super intelligent artificial intelligence yet. It's not thinking on its own. It's, it's not making decisions, but there are some things we could do right now. And, 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 you know, I might be slipping slightly outside of my field of expertise now, um, but some things we could, we could be doing right now. Um, so, so like you said, um, if we have a problem and then we try to get on top of it by using law and governments, it might be already too late to make that happen. So we need to start now by having these conversations. For one thing, we need, we need governments to start acting on this. Uh, it's one reason why I find it very upsetting that a lot of our governments around the world uh, consist of people who are not experts in science and engineering and technology. Uh, we, we need more computer programmers and scientists and engineers and philosophers and historians. Uh, we need more people uh, with different backgrounds than just law and business. Uh, law and business are wonderful, um, but if you only have law and business in government, uh, then you're missing out on this larger picture of what's going on in our world. Uh, and especially right now with our, our technology advancing so rapidly, so quickly, and our politicians really seeming not to understand much about technology, at least most of them around the world, uh, that's a problem. And it's setting us up for failure. Uh, we, we need politicians who can start having these conversations right now, who can say, look, we are going to have an issue down the road if we don't act and prepare right now. We should bring the world's best technologists and philosophers together right now and have them figure out the solutions that we, we want to apply to these problems before they become even worse problems. Um, and I, I'm, I'm an advocate for that across the board for all things, from space exploration uh, to, to pandemic response and all kinds of things. Uh, if we just had a little bit more uh, science and philosophy in our government and, a, and, and not as much just focusing solely on law and business and wealth and power, uh, it would make a huge difference for us. 
Exactly. And that's a great point. So hopefully, hopefully we will see that change, you know, somehow, someday, because exactly that's for, for, a, for a big change. And again, we need a big change. So it's either, you know, my personal view, it's again, because it seems like we're just boiling in our personal like juices. Again, with all the information that we have, like we like came up with pretty much everything that's around us, like we created everything, you know, and uh, like when it comes to language, numbers, like math, everything, we, we invented like all of it. But if we want to expand and again, have this kind of universal, you know, thinking and the way we, we live and again, you know, colonizing, maybe colonizing is not, is not the word, but living in different planets and, you know, being kind of multi-planetary species, we need to have some sort of a different maybe input. You know, so coming back to your thought, you know, because you again talking about this life, you know, being out there. So do you personally think and, you know, is there some sort of a research that kind of proves that there could be something out there and what this life would look like? Absolutely. As a scientist and someone who, who tries to think logically, I have to admit, and I, and I think we as a species have to admit that we could be alone without having any other example of life beyond our own biosphere that we know of so far, we have to admit that it's very possible that we could be alone. But when you start looking at the numbers, uh, when you start looking at how many stars there are in our galaxy alone, uh, a few hundred billion stars in our galaxy alone, and, and now that we've started discovering exoplanets, uh, there's over 4,200 confirmed so far, and chances are by the time I'm an old man on my deathbed, if I'm fortunate enough to become an old man, uh, then who knows, it could be 100,000 worlds that we know of. But based solely on the data we have so far, we think that there's probably more than one planet per star uh, in our galaxy. So there could be maybe even upwards of a trillion or more planets in our galaxy alone. And so those numbers, I mean, all the possible places where there could be an origin of life, uh, that really starts opening things up. And, and, and now that we're, we're exploring more and more into our solar system, uh, we're, we're building better and better observatories here on Earth and space-based observatories to look out into our solar system and far beyond. And we're learning more about the chemistry of the universe, the chemistry of dust clouds, of comets, of asteroids, of planets, of moons it's starting to show us that the chemistry that could lead to life seems to be abundant out there. And even though we still don't currently know exactly how, how, how chemistry became biology, we haven't, we haven't seen how that step happened yet. Uh, there's a lot of folks working in origins of life research who are getting very close to figuring out some of the possible paths uh, that could be followed to allow for an origin of life. And so I personally, as a human being and someone who, who dreams of other things, uh, I definitely think that there probably is something else out there, um, just based on the feeling of it, just the numbers, of the, the, the sheer data that we look at uh, out there, it makes, us, it makes it seem like there has to be something else. Uh, as Carl Sagan once, once famously wrote, uh, if there is nothing else, I mean, what a waste of space, right? There's just so much possibility. It'd be hard to imagine it only happening here. Uh, but again, though, we don't have any other examples. And so for someone like me, one of the great reasons to want to find alien life is to have other examples of life to actually allow us to then start doing comparative biology to actually seek out a potential uh, universal law or universal theory of life, uh, which we don't currently have. 
Exactly. So, yeah, I love the fact that you mentioned if we're going to look at take a look at the numbers. And again, we because we are basing everything on our perception and on math most of the time, because, you know, I had I, like I listened to many different scientists talking about that math is kind of universal language. And of course, again, using Drake equation, you know, to kind of look at possibilities of having that life out there. And I love the fact that you mentioned Carl Sagan, which uh, like a lot of people do remember the moment of Voyager 1 and 2 and, you know, the gold, like the gold disc that we send it with kind of engraved, you know, the location, the DNA, basically the music around late. And I remember those scientists talking about, look, if those, you know, creatures, aliens, extraterrestrials is going to find that, they will read that, they will find our coordinates, they will come and visit us. And my question was, is math really a universal language? Because as I mentioned, you know, we have only a few sensors and maybe those, again, aliens, creatures, most of the time we think, I don't know, maybe it's through the movies or because again, we, I think we have zero to almost none like research when it comes to that extraterrestrial life because we has most of the time we just have theories, right? So how do we know if it's more advanced, less advanced, and how do we even know it, that they will be even kind of read it and the math is going to be their own personal universal language? Yeah, I mean, so we have a lot of hypotheses about how alien life might be. If alien life is anything like us, you know, carbon-based life, if it has some of the uh, similar ways of perceiving the universe as we do, there are some things we could guess about. Um, we might not get it entirely right, but we could, we could make some pretty, pretty strong educated guesses about things that alien life might experience based on their stellar environment, their planetary environment, their local environments in the world in which they live. Um, but when it, when, it, when it comes to uh, questions like, you know, is, is math the language of the universe? Uh, and my, my friend Sarah Amari Walker, uh, who's a physicist and astrobiologist, uh, I, I, she has a tweet, and I don't think I have it bookmarked, unfortunately, but, and it's quite some time ago, uh, but I love this tweet that she posted. Uh, she wrote that, uh, math is not the language of the universe, but it is the language with which we understand the universe. Yeah. And we do have good reason to think that if there is an intelligent alien species out there, it will also have developed math as a language with which to understand the universe. And because of that, there's a, a better chance that that language, that mathematical language is how we might be able to communicate. Now that could be entirely wrong. Maybe that species would prefer to communicate in some other manner that's kind of beyond us. Maybe they want to communicate instead by shining uh, uh, some kind of light at us or, or interacting with our consciousness even, um, since there's so much we don't know about how consciousness functions yet. Uh, maybe we're only just beginning to understand consciousness and maybe an intelligent alien species has a much greater knowledge of how not only consciousness works, but maybe how to tap into it. And so maybe much like in science fiction, the aliens will just jump into our brains and just speak to us through our consciousness. Uh, so there's so much we don't know, but we do have a good reason to think that mathematics could be a similar language with which we could talk to each other then. Uh, if they start using mathematics to understand atomic chemistry, to understand the, the things going on inside of stars and on planets, to understand orbits, uh, there's a lot of ways we could start using mathematics, very basic mathematics, very basic physical principles about our universe to make a connection with which to start figuring out some shared language. Um, but yeah, with the, the Voyager Golden Record, um, it's, a, it's a beautiful feat for humans to have made these records, let alone putting them on these spacecraft that have lasted over 40 years now traveling through space uh, and are still communicating with us back here at home. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful thing, but, but yes, may, maybe the aliens would try to play this, this disc 
and would hear the noise and, and not be able to make anything of it. Maybe they can't hear noise, uh, or maybe they would, they would look, try, try to look at the data in a different way, and they just wouldn't see what we had intended for them to see. Um, and so there, there's a lot of questions there about how aliens might perceive, how they might communicate, but we do have good reason to think that math could be the one way that we could share some kind of language. Exactly. So it could be. So that's one of the theories. And again, it's uh, up to the time and up to all these research uh, until we're going to discover that. But I, I love one kind of part that you mentioned, having kind of that conversation with those uh, aliens, again, on a conscious kind of, you know, through the consciousness, through the minds. And I don't know if you heard some stories, you know, of people having those kind of psychedelic trips using, let's say, DMT. And, you know, a lot of these people are talking about having that trip and some sort of having the conversation with some, you know, alien-like creatures and, you know, they're kind of explaining them something and those people come back from those trips and they kind of try and explain what the information was, but it's very hard to explain because, you know, it's it seems like the information that they're giving is just going through through our heads because it's it's so much more advanced and, it's, and it feels like, and it seems like those people having these type of contacts. So could it be that basically, you know, the universe and, uh, you know, if we go back to the fact, because our brain, if we're going to go to the kind of, you know, neuron level, it, it looks pretty similar to the universe itself. If, if you're going to take a look at it, you know, billion light years away. So could be a, a, could there be a chance that actually the, the universe is is like we can communicate through our consciousness and through the mind? I mean, going like into, you know, like kind of unconscious and through some sort of, a, you know, meditation, like psychedelic experiences. Could, could that be an option, too? Truthfully, I don't know. And it's interesting to explore. And again, I love science fiction. And I love that science fiction has allowed us to explore what, what could happen if we, if we could communicate through consciousness, through our thoughts. What would happen if we could perceive alien communication in this manner? And we, do, we, don't, we don't know. That's the problem. We, we can't test whether or not that's happening yet. Uh, I am glad we are, we are doing a lot more research now on psychedelics. Uh, not only for therapeutics, but for recreation, for, you know, more experiences of what can happen inside of our minds. But we don't know yet if those experiences are anything more than what's going on inside of our minds. And, you know, as much as we have a hard time right now with saying what is life, we have a way harder time with saying what is consciousness. We really, we really don't know what it means yet to be conscious in this universe. And there, there are some different hypotheses, different ideas out there about how consciousness functions. Um, you know, the more reductionist standpoint is that we humans have our minds built up to this point. It's evolved to this point that consciousness is coming only from inside of our minds. We're only conscious in our minds and that's it. And then there's a far other side of the spectrum um, called panpsychism, where some people think that it could be possible that consciousness is everywhere in the universe. And instead, what's happened is we've evolved to a point that we have an organ that allows us to tap into this, this consciousness that really is everywhere, uh, which is why some people wonder, you know, are we actually more connected through our consciousness as, as human beings on this planet uh, than we're aware of? And, you know, again, I don't know. It, it might be possible. And there's just so much we don't understand yet about the mind and, and what's going on inside. Uh, it's part of the reason that I, I love meditation so much. Um, this moment where you realize that that thinking part of your mind isn't necessarily you, you know, you're, you're the other part, the part that's being given the thoughts, but there's a, there's a deeper part of you that can just sit there and just let the thinking stuff go away. And then you kind of find a, a base version of yourself. 
personally, I've, I've never felt you know, like communication from aliens through that or, or anything like that. Um, but it's something I highly recommend for people. Uh, I think for us as a species to, to expand our awareness of ourselves and our place in the cosmos, two of the best things I, I think we can do uh, is that everyone can learn meditation. It's very simple. I think it will help all of us to be better people. Uh, but then also sending humans to space, experiencing the overview effect, uh, the term coined by Frank White uh, in 1987 for this psychological shift in awareness that happens to astronauts when they go into orbit and see our Earth kind of hanging in the cosmic void. Uh, um, I, I get a similar psychological shift when I meditate. And so I think meditation and I think getting more human beings from different backgrounds and different perspectives into space to see our world and then share those stories with others. Those two things I, I think will greatly change what it means to be human. It'll change what it means for us to understand ourselves. And in that, I think it will help us to then explore some more of these really, really deep questions like what is consciousness? Are we tapping into something bigger or not? Uh, because, and I will finish off again with the, the same phrase, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I do understand that you don't know, but again, the third question, kind of the deep question that uh, us as people are exploring is before, uh, again, before, because once we're going to die, before the AI is going to be around, when we can kind of download our thoughts and consciousness into the computer, what do you personally think uh, is happens when we die? I mean, because we can actually sense that, you know, because we need to take a look as again, if somebody had somebody close to them that kind of passes away, you can actually see that that something that was there is not there anymore. So whatever people call it soul or, you know, your kind of consciousness. So what do you think actually happens with, with, with that kind of information and with everything that we have inside us as, you know, as, as people? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of places we can go there with, with philosophy and theology and, and the concept of the soul. Uh, for me personally, I, I do consider myself to be an agnostic atheist. Uh, I don't believe in the soul. Uh, so there, there's, in, in, in this realm of philosophy and theology, it's called dualism. Uh, there's this human belief that our soul is something separate from what we are. And I don't have a good reason to believe that because I always, I always wondered if you have one soul, why don't you have a million souls? Um, why, why would you only have one other thing? Um, and, and, you know, why is it only connecting with you? And, and so I, I never quite, un, uh, quite, quite understood how the soul concept would function. Uh, and I mean no offense to those out there who do believe in it. Um, when we start speaking about things that we can't test scientifically, then we have to start discussing belief and what we think and feel. And so these are things that we can't test with science. However, given what we do know right now about the human being, the human body, it seems that when you die, that's it, you are gone. And so whether or not you think that consciousness is just arising from inside of your brain, or whether you think that you are, you have an organ that's tapping into the universe, maybe when you die one way or the other, that organ that is the, the thing that's, that's connecting with this consciousness, be it inside or outside is gone. And so you're no longer connecting to that consciousness and so for me personally, I, th I think when you're dead, that's it. Uh, and I think that there's a beauty to that as well. Um, being mortal means that there's a finite time that we have in the cosmos to connect with each other, to explore what it means for ourselves to be alive, and for us to look out deeper into the cosmos and ask these big questions. And having that finite time, I think, gives us more reason to appreciate that time and to be the best versions of ourselves that we can be 
with that very limited time that we have. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I don't know if I'll, if I'll get the chance to be an old man. I might not. Um, you know, things happen, and, and sometimes death comes in tragic ways rather quickly, and you can't know when it's going to happen. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen today. And there's just no way of, of knowing when this is going to happen. And because of that, I think we really have to cherish every moment, make the best of every single moment, because we just don't know yet. Um, and who knows, maybe, maybe one day we will have a new tool of science that will allow us to figure out more about this. And maybe it will be because we've, we've met an alien and, and this alien intelligence, this, this other civilization has, has come and shared their science with us. And, and maybe they have a different understanding and that's allowed us to explore what consciousness really is in a way that we never thought possible. And maybe we'll have better answers to those questions then. Uh, but for now, I, I think from my own personal experience, it seems like when you're gone, you're gone. Exactly. So that, that could be that. That's again, one of, one of the takes. So again, we're going to find out what's once we're going to be gone. I mean, that that's probably will answer the question, you know, you know, in this podcast, but uh, I love the fact again, I've seen this movie quite not long ago, I watched it with wife and, um, you know, it was I can't remember exactly the name because it was just, you know, not good movie. But I remember one line is basically this kind of, you know, alien type of kind of lady looks like a human being. She went to this kind of bath. And it's like, you know, like water and, you know, crazy looking water. And she walked out from the water and she, she became like younger. And uh, basically she talked about this is what basically it is the most important um, kind of commodity in space, you know, and she was like, uh, it's time. You know, she said, that's the most important, like that's the biggest commodity, the most expensive thing in, in the universe is time. So again, how, how can we kind of explore ourselves? Because like I see sometimes uh, a few people who are kind of spending the time here on the planet unconsciously, you know, it's all about kind of, you know, especially during these times, it's all about consumerism, buying everything new, it's buying, buying, spending money, working, you know, and doing all these things. How we can open up our personal kind of conscious Again, as you mentioned, through meditation and kind of experience the world maybe in more colors and maybe, you know, like, and maybe you can add in why space should be important as to the kind of day to day people. Should we think about it all the time, some of the time? Like, you know, how can we get this kind of start to have this universal thinking? Because if we're talking about exploring and, you know, going to the Mars and living in different planets, we need to have different perspective, you know, instead of going and buying stuff all the time. So, what would you suggest? Absolutely. Again, I, I am a huge fan of meditation. I highly recommend it. There are lots of ways to get into meditation. There's actually a, a lot of different ways to meditate as well. When I first uh, started meditating, I was a young kid uh, uh, studying the martial arts, and I was training in Tang Sudo at that point. And I remember before and after our classes, they would have they would the instructors would have us sit down, and they would say, you know, meditate, and they wouldn't give us any 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 other cues. They just you know close your eyes. And then they would say the one phrase that I, I hate hearing, they say, close your eyes and then clear your mind. Uh, and of course, when you tell someone to clear their mind, the first thing's going to happen is they're, they're going to become a jumble of clutter in their mind and the thoughts won't stop because they're trying to stop them. Um, and so it took me a long time in my life later to really start learning some better techniques for meditating, um, from mindfulness and, and, and other ways to kind of get into a meditative state. Um, and so I, I really like mindfulness a lot, but there are, are other ways out there. There's, there's mantra style meditations and some other things out there. Um, if, if people do want to get involved, there are really wonderful apps these days. Um, Headspace is great. There's Deepak Chopra's app. 
Um, Insight Timer is wonderful. There, there's a bunch of great apps out there. There's also a YouTube channel that I really like called The Honest Guys, uh, where they develop a lot of guided meditations that you can check out. Uh, those things helped me many years ago to, to get into this realm of meditation. Uh, there's Dan Harris's 10% Happier. Uh, it's an app and a podcast where he talks a lot about meditation uh, with various people who are, are interested or involved in this realm uh, of meditation. Uh, so I do highly recommend that. Uh, other things that we could do right now, uh, one is read. Read everything. Read, read lots of books, read websites, read articles. Uh, you know, we, we need people to be more voracious readers. Uh, I get very offended when I hear someone like Kanye West saying so, and, and somehow happily that he's, he's, he's a happy non-reader, that he, he enjoys being a non-reader. And, and I, I just, I can't personally respect that very much because I think that the way forward is for us to learn more and we do that by reading and we need to read a lot. And so uh, I'm a huge advocate for, for, for literature, for, for, for reading books. Uh, and you can read whatever makes you happy. If you're into romance books, science fiction, horror, what a nonfiction, there's so many different kinds of things you can read, but by reading, it helps us to start kind of understanding more of, of what we are. Um, so, and also uh, exercise is huge. You know, if, if you start exercising, um, the benefits to your body and to your life are, are, are amazing. Um, you know, being sedentary and sitting back on your couch all day, watching movies and television, um, it can be rewarding in the immediate sense because you get to enjoy uh, watching some really cool shows and stuff like that. Uh, but you're not, you're not really then engaging with your body. And through exercise, through martial arts, through yoga, weightlifting, running, biking, there's so many ways for us to engage with our physical bodies um, that not only helps us to feel good by, by releasing a lot of really good hormones, but also allows us then to be more functional in the world around us. Uh, if you're walking down the street and you happen to see someone on a bicycle get hit by a vehicle, uh, if you want to be someone who can react and help, then being physically capable of doing so is important. Knowing how to help is important. Um, and so th there's, there's reasons to, to exercise beyond just the basic fitness of your life. Um, if you're ever out for a hike in the wilderness and a mountain lion starts to chase you, I'd much rather be someone who can get away when needed rather than someone who took so much time in ingratiating myself on simple pursuits that now I'm, I'm going to die because I made bad choices. Uh, and so there's a lot of reasons to do those things, uh, meditation, exercise, reading, uh, and also just engaging with people. You know, I, I love sharing my experiences with others. When I, I try my hardest, I really do, to answer all of my messages on social media and emails and things like that. I, I do apologize to those who reach out. If I don't respond right away, it can take me several weeks sometimes to catch up uh, on my messages. And then I'm almost always several weeks behind because of that. But there are so many people now in our world who want to have these conversations, who want to talk more about philosophy and astrobiology and astrophysics and planetary science and missions to space and all of these things and meditation and martial arts and, and things like that too. And so my recommendation is to, to reach out to people, to, to drop a line, say hi. Uh, even right now in this pandemic, even though we can't, we can't shake hands and hug and, and, and you know, hold each other the way that we would before, we can still connect online and we can still have great conversations uh, and we can still be social. I don't like the term social distancing. I prefer the term physical distancing because we can still be very social, especially right now with things like, like all these very, very, various teleconferencing apps that we have and, and ways to connect. Uh, and so I, I think we need to continue connecting with each other. 
that will help us to then kind of think through some of these larger problems that we have. Beautiful. And that's a really good advice right there. I love the fact that you're calling it physical distancing instead of social distancing. Because, you know, going back to the basics, I mean, that's that's the way it's supposed to be called, right? But again, I don't like the fact, as I mentioned, like Kanye West is talking about, you know, I'm not a reader and probably that's a good way to go about because like some people like him, you know, he, they have too much influence on other people. And those people will probably follow the path because, you know, oh, look, the Kanye doesn't read, you know, so I'll, I'll, I will do exactly the same. And it's probably the, the younger generation. I'm, I'm pretty sure there will be a few ones, you know, in 30s and 40s, but uh, it, it's, it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty bad. Okay, so but talking about some bad stuff, you know, at the same time, you mentioned kind of Starlink. And uh, what's your personal take on that? I mean, is it good or bad? Because, you know, like social media is, is kind of it right now. Uh, part of that kind of social, you know, conversations, the ones that we're having right now. Again, I'm not using Starlink because, you know, I have, a, you know, local internet connection. But is it gonna, a good thing? Because, look, I think it's very important coming back to your point of, you know, mountain lions and things like that when we go for camping or, you know, hiking. Like, I want to take the selfie with mountain lions. You know, that's needed from a social media. So do you think it's a good thing in the future to have more satellites, which I think it's like 520 additional satellites on Starlink itself a year? So what do you what do you personally think? For me personally, I'm, I'm very much on the fence with Starlink right now. Uh, it's good and bad. So let me start with the bad. The stars in the night sky, uh, they, they not only allow us to see the universe, to look out into the cosmos. I mean, this is starlight that has traveled for thousands of years to reach our eyes. And, and the act of stargazing is something that I value myself in my life. It's something that my, my family that we enjoy doing together. When my young son grows up, I, I really hope that he then wants to take his family out in, into dark areas to see the sky above. But this, the stars are also our cultural heritage. Looking at the heavens above us in our specific place in the cosmos, it's part of how we humans went from being uh, cavemen, basically, into becoming a more technological civilization that we are now. People looked at the heavens, they saw the stars and, and these wandering stars, the planets uh, moving, and, and they, they built rituals around the movements of stars, including our sun um, in our sky, apparent to them. We now know that, you know, our Earth is rotating and, and orbiting around our star, and that's kind of, you know, driving these differences that we're seeing. Um, but we wouldn't have gotten there, I don't think, without having seen the stars. Uh, it's a big question uh, about whether or not, you know, life evolves in an ocean world like Europa or Enceladus. If an advanced uh, intelligence evolved in an ocean world and they couldn't see the stars, would they develop science? Would they develop the same kind of understanding that we have? And, and we just don't know the answer to that. Uh, and, and their understanding of their universe would be very different because they wouldn't be seeing outside of their world. Um, you know, on Europa, there could be as much as 10 kilometers, maybe even more of ice over that ocean. And so certainly any organisms down there aren't seeing the heavens beyond. And, you know, having that connection, when I, when I look at the stars at night, knowing that ancient people also looked at those stars and also saw themselves out there, it made them ask grander questions about what's going on in the heavens above them. I feel a strong connection to that as a human being. And I think all of us should, we, we should feel this tie to what it means to be human on the surface of our very beautiful blue marble to look at those stars together around the world at night when we're looking up. 
Uh, and with something like Starlink, you know, with over 500 satellites per year, but you know, if they actually get over 10,000 satellites in orbit, if, if you know, and, and it's not just Starlink, there are going to be other satellite constellations very soon from competing companies. Because whenever a new technology develops that can make a lot of money uh, and, and reach a very large customer base, and when you're talking about satellite internet, you're, you're talking about the entire global populace, uh, that, that gives a lot of drive for other businesses to build satellite constellations. And there's currently no laws, there, 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 there's no space law that says that you can't launch tens of thousands of satellites, that there, there's no law controlling that. But no one else gets to say, you know, like, we don't want our, our skies covered in satellites. No one can stop that from happening right now. And that kind of worries me because, you know, you've already seen pictures, I'm sure, from astrophotographers and astronomers and observatories where the satellite constellation came through their image and, and ruined the, take, they were, they, the picture they were taking. And so from that standpoint, I feel like it's bad. I don't know what's going to happen when we have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of satellites in orbit that are hindering us as much from seeing the stars the way we used to, especially when we're using telescopes, cameras, and those things. Um, however, there, there are people who argue, you know, that, that even then, like, we'll, we'll see little glints of light, but it'll be okay. Uh, and there'll be ways to block some of the, the sunlight from re reflecting that they're trying out right now. Um, okay, fair enough. Another potential bad thing about it is this idea of the Kessler syndrome, um, where we could have a large collision in low Earth orbit of a satellite, um, you know, a lot of us have worried, you know, four nations so far have tested anti-satellite technology by using rockets to blow up satellites in orbit, which just makes a bunch of extra debris that's uncontrolled that goes in different directions. And there's a lot of wonderful people out there, like uh, uh, Mariba Ja Kennison is one of them. Uh, he's studying space, degree, uh, space debris and trying to help us map out where all of the debris are, including active satellites, as well as broken down pieces of space material. And when we start putting tens of thousands of satellites into these orbits for satellite constellations, we start increasing the potential of having something like a runaway disastrous event happen in orbit, where one of those satellites gets destroyed, it causes other satellites to get destroyed. And before you know it, we're like in the, in the movie WALL-E uh, from Pixar films where, you know, we can't get outside of the Earth because we, we have this just this huge field of gunk of just artificial crap all around our planet. And we don't want that. Um, so that's a potential bad. So then on the good side, the good side is that um, with very good engineering, I think it's entirely possible for us to avoid uh, that potential problem of creating this huge zone of space debris around us. Using very good engineering and science, we can figure out when the satellites are passing overhead and time our photos uh, of the night sky to that. And then on the very good side, the benefit that I see for this is that right now during the pandemic, I've seen so many more people from around the world. I've interacted with people all over the place from around our planet. And it's inspiring to me. It's hopeful to be meeting so many people, especially young people who are interested in astrophysics and planetary science and astrobiology and philosophy, who want to, who want to be involved in these larger pursuits that we humans can undertake. And they wanna be involved in it together. They wanna to work with us together around our world to do that. And when we have satellite constellations that can provide uh, internet access, hopefully cheaply, uh, to the entire populace of the planet, uh, if people choose, we're going to see a lot more people come on online. Uh, it's going to democratize the internet in a way that we just weren't really ready for, we weren't expecting. 
uh, when you have billions more people coming online all the time, you have a lot more perspectives and voices. We'll start hearing more stories, uh, more language, more, more of the human experience from around the world. And of, of course, there'll also be a lot of internet scams and other things, but I'm, I'm very hopeful and optimistic about what it will mean for more of us to join in, in this human experience of being online together. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So yeah, there will be a lot of advantages and, uh, you know, a few disadvantages also, you know, like you mentioned the scamming and, you know, and uh, a lot of, you know, bad stuff that comes with it. But look, I mean, you know, and I, I, like the biggest point for me, I think, you know, when it comes to disadvantages is that through social media, there is so much information, uh, again, is getting distorted, you know, because it becomes like this kind of broken phone that we used to play as kids. So I just don't like the fact of that because there's a lot of the, again, what's happening with the social media because, you know, COVID just kind of proved it that uh, we're so dependent on the social media. And again, for somebody who has a business, that's probably the only way that they survived, probably depending on what a business that they have, but the kind of the best way to drive the customers, the leads, again, it's through social media. So, and I think more and more businesses and people will be on social media, but in that case, again, there's a lot of young people who are, let's say starting a YouTube channel or something, you know, and like, it's all about kind of clickbaiting titles and, you know, it's so, you know, so, yeah. So, so that's my biggest, you know, uh, kind of thought, you know, how much of, uh, you know, like people who would be even more confused because of that noise, which is going to be amplified by those people. And it would be like, like, I have no clue what's actually happening in life. Like, I don't understand anything, you know, everything is going so rapidly. Like technology is just, you know, is like going like a rocket and it's, you know, it's continued to, to speed up. Like, and there is no way for us to turn this around because it's a, it's an animal on its own and like how we can, you know, catch it up, you know, as people, you know, because like there are people who are in forties, fifties, they, they will never catch these trends or the technology itself, you know? So, but again, for the younger generation who are growing up in the, in this kind of environment, probably there could be a hope, you know, for that, but talking for the future generations, I mean, do you believe that, um, we should go and, and live on Mars. What's your personal, you know, you know, idea and, and thoughts on that? And when do you think, if you think you're up for that, when do you think that will happen? Yeah, I went to space camp. I was very, very fortunate when I was 13 years old, I went to space camp in Huntsville, Alabama. And that was a time in my life where I, I was very focused on, I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, I figured, you know, I'll become a scientist, maybe an astrophysicist or planetary scientist, and then I'll become an astronaut and I'll go to space. And that was my dream then. And I remember that back then, especially, I was really focused on being one of the first humans to go to Mars. And I remember in, in space camp, the counselors would say this, this thing that you would hear a lot. Uh, in 20 years, your generation will be the very first generation to go to Mars. And so uh, later, I'm at university and studying biology and, and chemistry and talking to people in, in the space realm. And I, and I hear a lot of people saying, in 20 years, we'll be on Mars. And I, and I hear people talking to, to young students at, at, you know, in their high schools and, and gyms and things like that for, for meetings and, and whatnot and science fairs. And they're, they're like, in 20 years, you'll be going to Mars. Uh, and then when I, when I first started graduate school working on my PhD in geology, uh, I was doing a lot more communication of science and I was going to schools and doing these things myself and, and giving these lectures about getting humans to Mars and learning about astrobiology and studying the planets. And I, and I found myself, and I caught myself one day saying this, that I was telling some, some young children, in, in 20 years, you'll be the first ones on Mars. And, I, and I, I caught myself saying it because I realized how 
silly it is for us to keep saying over and over and over again, it's two decades away, when it never becomes two decades away. Uh, and it was over two decades ago when I was in space camp. And so we're not there yet. I think it's going to happen. I want it to happen, but we need to stop using that language. We need to stop saying, we'll be there in 20 years. We need to start saying, we can go there right now. Here's what we need to do to make that happen. So we need to stop putting it off and we need to start working together across the world to make that happen. If that's a goal that we share as humans, then it's something that we need to do. And it is important for us to, to have the conversation about whether or not we should go to Mars, whether or not we should send humans to Mars. There, there are people out there who don't think we should do that, who think that we, we should leave Mars unsettled, that we shouldn't send humans there, we shouldn't explore there. And we need to have those conversations uh, to determine how to best proceed. Um, and again, like just, just, like, just like with artificial intelligence, it's already happening, so we need to do it now. We need to have those conversations now. Uh, and I personally, I still would love to see humans go to Mars. For me, myself, I, I believe that is something that we should do, and I think it's something that we should do right now. Uh, I've done crew rotations at Mars analog bases. I, I was at the Mars Desert Research Station some years ago. Uh, I'm lucky enough that almost every year I get to travel there now to help run a, an undergraduate student engineering competition uh, called the University Rover Challenge, where young students around the world from many, many nations, Poland, the UK, America, India, Bangladesh, Canada, Egypt, uh, they spend the better part of a year building a Mars rover in their universities. And then those who do the best job building it and, and showing us that they're, they're ready to compete, uh, we, we invite them then out to the desert in Utah, uh, in the United States, and we give them a competition in a Mars analog environment where they can experience what it's like to run their robots in this competition uh, against each other. And it's a, very, it's a very fun event. I really enjoy doing that. Uh, and just seeing the intelligence of these, these young kids makes me just all the more excited for getting humans to Mars, for engineering through the problems that we have to make that happen and getting it done. Uh, and, and again, I think we should do it right now. I'd love to see it happen. And I'd love to see it happen in my lifetime so that maybe I would have a chance to go too. Um, but even if I don't, um, whoever the first people are on Mars, that experience is going to come back to all of us. The same way that Neil Armstrong walking on the moon on July 20th, 1969, people around the world connect with that event. Not just people from the US, uh, not just people from more technological, uh, more advanced nations, people from around the world, they, they connect with that event where, where Neil stepped his foot down onto the surface of the moon. And I think the same thing's going to happen when we go to Mars. It doesn't matter which nation the astronaut is going to come from, it's going to be something that everyone can connect with. We can see a human being in a spacesuit stepping onto the surface of Mars, and that's going to be an important moment for us as a species, stepping out onto other worlds. And I, I think we need to do that because again, I think the experience of exploring space, of looking back at ourselves from space, but also looking out, uh, this is one of those experiences that, that gives us a, a greater global awareness of who and what we are. Exactly. So I love it. I love it though, the way you put out things, you know, and it's like, uh, I like the positive outlook that you have on pretty much every kind of, you know, subject that we talked about, because if we're going to go down, you know, <laughs> It's, it's better to go down by being positive and, you know, having this positive outlook. So, so that is awesome. I love your personal kind of thought 
thought process and the way you look at things. But again, talking about from, you know, because I'm, you know, sometimes I'm more kind of pessimist and realist at the same time. So I kind of try to look for problems and, you know, kind of take those problems apart. And one of the problems that I'm seeing with the Mars colonization, we're talking about going now and we can do that now. And again, with the given technology, we definitely can do it now. Probably we can do it. Again, but the conversations that I had with, you know, with the people on a podcast, it's either those who are, uh, you know, working on analog missions or working on Morse colonization projects is kind of the conclusion that we came up with. It's not the technology, it's the people. It's those kind of, you know, situations because like you've been in analog part of the analog missions and, you know, when you have a group of, let's say, eight people who are kind of staying in one place in a one, you know, on the one kind of dome you will have problems you know that's just the human nature like, like people don't get along together they have to work you know they're especially in those kind of critical you know like emergency situations that will happen so would you think again uh like when will we ready like kind of on you know on that level where we not kill ourselves you know in those type of situations because if we like we talked about putting thousand people on you know on the mars of course, I do understand the first people will be like heavily trained, you know, astronauts. And but at some point, that threshold which is really high for, for somebody to become an astronaut. It has to be lowered if we want to go and travel to Mars and, and live in there, you know, for a long period of time. So how do you think we can mitigate the risks there, you know, where we kind of avoid those critical situations, you know, in those in those environments? Yeah, understanding psychology and sociology is important for space exploration, for human space exploration. And, and we need that. We, we need people who understand psychology. We need psychologists, sociologists to get involved and help us with the research of how we can do this. But we are doing it already with those analog bases, with the International Space Station, you know, uh, deep sea habitats that we've built and things like that, uh, or that we're working on. Um, we have these chances to already figure out what it means to be isolated in these environments, uh, like the Mars 500 experiment and things like that, where we put humans together in isolation and, and we see what happens to them. And yes, there have been problems. There have been some problems in space with some personalities uh, conflicting. There have been problems in some analog bases. But on the whole, most people have done actually quite well. Uh, most analog teams actually get along fairly well. Uh, I'm still friends with, with a couple of people from my, my analog team that I did back in 2008. Uh, and so, you know, you create these bonds together by going through these experiences. And yes, you're right, the, the very first people going to Mars most likely will be very well-trained astronaut explorers. Uh, they'll most likely have uh, at least a PhD, if not more degrees, uh, or several PhDs. Uh, they'll most likely be well-trained in medicine and first aid, uh, most likely be trained very well in geology and geochemistry and biology, because that's what we need for humans going there for doing research. Uh, they'll also likely be very well-trained in engineering in case something breaks and they need to fix it. Uh, and that will happen for the, the very first groups of people that we send to Mars, most likely to be very well trained, including being trained on how to handle uh, interpersonal conflicts uh, and how to manage themselves as well when they start feeling lonely. Uh, and maybe even right now, we have the best example of an experiment of this in the pandemic. Um, I'm, very, I'm very lucky in that during the pandemic, I've had my wife and my son. Uh, I'm not alone, but, but some people during this have been very isolated, have felt very alone. And so we now have them coming online to share their experiences. And we are sharing a worldwide experience of, of isolation right now because of physical distancing and because of what's going on with the pandemic. And we're still, we're, we're getting through it. Um, I, I do feel very bad for those who've had some issues. And if anyone listening or watching this 
is having any issues, I'm always happy to talk. Um, I've, I've suffered depression in my own life. There are tools to treat depression, uh, to work through it for yourself, to work through it with help from others. Uh, but it's always important to take that step of, of asking for help, of seeing that you need some support. Um, that said, I think we can send humans to Mars and yes, we're going to have interpersonal conflict, but I think we can do it. We, we, we've shown that we are a, a species. We are a civilization with resolve that we can get through our problems. And the best part of it is when we work together to get through those problems, it makes it all the better. Um, that, you know, we can find solutions that we wouldn't have found by ourselves when we actually tried to work together to find these solutions. And so, you know, again, a great thing for any of us to be doing is meditation, is reading and things like that. Um, you know, I found with myself, I've always had a temper. Um, I can fly off the hinges really quickly and get angry. Uh, but I found uh, as I've gone deeper into my own meditation practice, it's helped me to get a little bit more control over my own emotions and my emotional reactivity. And that's a, that's a big problem you know, we have as a species. Uh, it's very natural. We've evolved to react emotionally, to react quickly uh, to, to the situations going on around us. But when we give ourselves some space to breathe and think rationally instead through our problems, it, it really it gives us that moment of clarity that we actually need to solve a problem rather than make the problem a million times worse. Exactly. Exactly. Love it. So, and, and I love the fact, again, that you're looking to help people at the same time, the ones who are going through depression and, you know, things like that. So, well, I, I guess, you, you know, it's just like the more, because I'm trying to remember, again, the times that I had kind of, you know, kind of, I wouldn't call it depression, but probably just, you know, just on a bad spot, you know, for maybe longer than I should, you know, stay. And uh, probably most of those times, I was just kind of thinking about small stuff, you know, that don't matter most of the time, you know? And I think we, we need to have this kind of universal uh, perspective because I don't think that all of these people that are, you know, they're driving by with the cars right now, I don't think they're thinking about space. I'm pretty sure they're thinking about what they're gonna eat tonight, what type of movie they're gonna watch, maybe something else completely different. But, and I'm pretty sure most of those people never even probably thought about space unless they came across some type of, you know, TV or ad or something like that. And I think if we can, think about space and again, all these missions and everything that's happening in, you know, space, private industries, public agencies, I think we would be better as, as people because we will start to kind of embrace the universe and understand where we are in this vast of the universe at the same time and understand that we are small, but we're still important, you know? So absolutely. Yeah. One of my favorite comments I, I've ever heard from uh, Mae Jemison, the astronaut, uh, she was on a podcast, I, I believe it was with Deepak Chopra, and he was asking her, you know, about this experience, the overview effect, uh, and, and, you know, has anything changed for her since she came back from, from space, from seeing the Earth from space? And, and she made this comment that I love, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase because I can't quite remember the exact quote, but she basically said that since coming back from space, uh, she's never since been bothered by rush hour traffic which I, I find kind of humbling, right? You think about like how easy it is when you're by yourself in your vehicle and you're driving and there's lots of vehicles and you're stuck in rush hour traffic and it's so easy to get angry and to immediately find fault with all the things that are going on with all the people and their other vehicles around you. Uh, and, and the things that we scream at other people when we're driving our vehicles are things we would never say to them if we met them on the street. 
but they're things that in those moments we we, we the emotional reactivity forces us in the, into this kind of primate brain realm where we start getting angry uh but having the overview effect from mage emerson she doesn't feel that and I, and I find value in that it's just like with meditation where you can just take a moment of pause and just breathe and just realize that you're stuck in rush hour traffic it's going to it's eventually going to go away and you'll get through it and 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 that's that's an important thing that we we need as a species and so it's part of why i think meditation and getting humans into space are two of the things we can do right now to, to help fix up fix that emotional reactivity fix that that nature that we evolved uh, to start seeing through it, to see something better about ourselves. Exactly, indeed. So, yeah, definitely the books, the meditation, again, going for a jog, for a run, just, you know, taking some sort of sports. And, uh, you know, I think once the space travel will be accessible to everybody, I think taking some of the politicians or people who are in government, I think will be really beneficial because I'm pretty sure not all of them will change the perspective again, as, as you know, the astronauts you mentioned had, but a lot of them will. And a lot of them probably will make different decisions from, from there and go further, you know? So, so Absolutely. Yeah, that, uh, Edgar Mitchell, one of the Apollo astronauts has this, this quote you can find online where uh, he basically says, you know, by, by seeing the earth from the moon, you know, by, by seeing this, this world of ours, that we're all together on this world in this fragile place in space, just hanging in the void, uh, that it, it made him feel like he just wanted to grab a politician by the scruff of their neck, carry them the whole way out there, turn them around and make them look at it and say, look at that, you son of a bitch. Like, look at this world that we have. Like, all of your little petty problems, all of the bickering, the arguments, all of these power plays for, for wealth and positions of power, it means nothing in the grander scope of the cosmos. Uh, Carl Sagan, uh, has a very famous speech that was then turned into a book uh, called Pale Blue Dot, which is based on the Pale Blue Dot image uh, taken by the Voyager 1 spacecraft when it was roughly 6 billion miles away from the Earth. Uh, the, the, the team on the Voyager uh, crew, they, they, they turned the spacecraft around and they had it take uh, a family portrait of sorts of our planets that we could get in the image around the sun. And, and one of those pictures is, is a picture of our Earth. And in less than one pixel, just a little dot of light, of pale blue light, is our planet. Uh, and Carl Sagan remarked in this speech and, and, and in his book that, you know, all of the emperors, all of the kings, all of these people who bickered for positions of power, all of the lovers and parents, everything that we've ever experienced, all of our human history from that distance happened on a point of light, on a little, on a little moat floating in what was a sunbeam because of the way the image was taken and some, and some light was shining uh, inside of the camera. And I find that, that, that powerful and beautiful to think about. And yes, if we could get more politicians out there, if we could get more people to experience this, I think it's going to change how we think about ourselves. Uh, it's part of why I'm, I'm really excited right now for, for new space and for what's going on for the commercialization of space, uh, for groups like Space for Humanity and others who are, who are trying to get funds to get more private citizens from different backgrounds into space. Because right now we've had less than 600 people have actually traveled into space. And most of those people have been military trained people from the US, the Soviet Union and Russia and Europe. Uh, and we, we need to start expanding that more. We need people from lots of different backgrounds, not just science and engineering, but also history. And, and we need poets, we need artists, we need musicians. Uh, we need people who can go home and write children's books about the experience. We need people who can go home and, and create experiences through, through television and film and virtual reality for others to 
experience this. And I, I think by having more of those perspectives, more of those voices, including from our politicians, it's going to take us into a new realm of, of being aware of what we are. Exactly. Indeed, indeed. Love it. Love it. That's that's really awesome. So, I mean, so what with your personal journey, what you're going through right now, because like you're adding tremendous value again to the people again through having those conversations, as I mentioned, with people all over the world through Zoom and, you know, social media. So that is, that is really awesome. And what will be kind of your personal, you know, idea or thoughts or kind of footprint or legacy that you will look into kind of add to, to, to the people overall? It's a good question. I don't know. Um, there's another famous quote that I love uh, from a, a song. It was, it was a military song for World War I soldiers. Uh, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm on my way. I'm on my way somewhere right now. I've spent a lot of time studying in science and philosophy. I spent a lot of time learning how to communicate and share my ideas and my thoughts about science with others. And right now, the big things for me that, that, that bring the most joy to my life uh, I love those moments when you see the spark of curiosity, of understanding uh, in someone's eyes. Uh, so whether I'm volunteering at a museum or giving a lecture to a few thousand people, whether it's by having someone read my writing and then letting me know that they, they enjoyed it, um, whatever that moment is, when, when I see that moment in someone's eyes or I, I hear it in their voice or I see it in their writing, when you can see that, that someone has, has gotten stoked that they, they've felt this groovy need to now be more involved and to learn more and, and to join in this greater exploration of what it means to be human. Uh, those moments, whether the person is a five-year-old or a 75-year-old, they are so meaningful for me. Uh, it's, it's that human connection that we, we are doing this together, we're exploring together. And when I, can, when I can share some of my knowledge in a way that allows someone else to open up a bit more to the cosmos and a bit more to what's possible out there, those moments, they, they keep me alive. They, they, they keep me going forward. And so for me, being someone who makes those connections is critical um, to my happiness. And it's just something that I think brings great value. And so that's, that's kind of where I'm going, I guess. Uh, but again, I don't know where I'm going. I'm on my way. Exactly. I love the quote. That, that is a good quote. So I think, uh, yeah, like, because life is definitely a journey and sometimes we think we have a plan because, you know, like before the 2020, you know, everybody has this kind of routine, you know, about planning, you know, New Year's resolution about we'll do this next year, which you will have to make New Year's resolution. You can make a resolution today or January 5th or, you know, August 27th, like it doesn't matter. Just make a decision, you know, make a decision to do something else with your life, you know, because life is definitely more. And that's why I wanted to have you on because I love, again, your personal perspective and view on the world. So I think more people should have that view on the world also and become kind of, you know, freer, I would say, because there is a sense of kind of you being free and, you know, people become free when they don't have any like shields, you know, because most of the people, because that's where the creativity stands, you know, like people are creative when they don't have any shields, like they're just are who they are. Of course, part, part of that, as I mentioned, like having these routines of meditation, books, and just talking publicly with people, there's some certain skills that you have, you know, to build over years, but just, uh, you know, having this perspective on life, you know, like, as I mentioned, the quote that I don't know where I'm going, but on my way, you know, I'm on my way. So just having that thought that, you know, there's something ahead, you know, magnificent and beautiful, and I'm just going for that, you know, so, so that, that's a beautiful quote. I love it. So again, uh, guys, like, 
that that is awesome. I love we we probably didn't touch a lot of different uh, you know subjects here that were listed again in your personal bio, but. I mean, go and get in contact with this man, you know, because I would love to have you on again for a second time for a second episode and maybe we can go a different direction uh, because I think there's so much more that we can squeeze from the, you know, from from your thoughts and ideas and the, the view that you have on world and again on, on you know, astrophysics and just different, different stuff. So, I mean, I, I love your personal kind of just the knowledge and, and the information that you got. But uh, guys, with you, if you shared this episode with your friends, so as you know, it could be any friends, just pass this along because uh, I'm sure those people will find a lot of good quotes being mentioned here in this podcast episode. Of course, a lot of inspiration, uh, just like reasons why and how people should uh, view the world, why people should pursue, you know, traveling and living in different planets is just having this kind of broader, wider view on everything. So make sure to do that. And again, for you, Graham, is a big, big thank you, you know, for coming over today, for sharing your values, the ways, the ways again, you look at the world and, you know, the, the personal legacy that you're looking to, looking to leave behind you. I mean, it's, it's really beautiful. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So again, guys, make sure to send this episode to your friend. And as always, I'll see you next time on the next episode. And until then, keep exploring.